The end of Numbers 14 narrated a defeat. The defeat of Israelites by some Amalekites, some Canaanites. The Israelites faced those warriors not because uh, the Lord had directed them into that situation and therefore a defeat that followed. Instead, there was a uh, directive of the Lord. The next morning you shall go back to the wilderness and toward the Red Sea. They did not follow the word of God. And the Ark of the Covenant and Moses, the leader, did not accompany them outside the camp. Some people from the camp left to go do battle and enter the land and faced judgment, a defeat by the Amalekite Canaanite warriors. This was after a divine pronouncement, one of the most important in the Old Testament. Um, I'm trying not to overstate things about Numbers 13 and 14, but I don't think I've overstated anything about how important Numbers 13 and 14 are to the history of the Israelites. It is what was a pivotal passage leading to a 40-year delay from their perspective to the Promised Land. And um, that wilderness generation had such an impression on the biblical authors, the psalmists, the prophets, that language reaches back to those two Numbers chapters over and over again. And even in the New Testament, as I tried to highlight, passages from the Gospels and the the book of Acts and from the letters of the Apostles draw upon Numbers 13 and 14. Uh, So I don't think it's overstating things to, to notice what an important section of Scripture we've just been in together. What we will feel tonight, I think, is a very different twist in the matter with with, uh, no narrative. There is no narrative in the passage tonight of verses 1 to 31 that uh, advance the storyline that we see. Instead of a a narrative advancing the scene, we we squeal on the brakes, okay, timeline-wise, and we notice a section of instructions. Instructions about sacrifice of all things, offerings that they're to bring to the Lord and why. Then in verses 32, which we will see on Sunday morning, 32 to the end of the passage, narrative resumes. And um, right between narration, chapter 14 and chapter 15, 32, this section about offerings, why does that matter? Um, There has been uh, more than one writer about these uh, verses that have said, do these just seem out of place I mean, you're going along so well, you're moving, the momentum is there, the Israelites are traveling. More sacrificial offering instructions? Like, where is this? Where, why is it here? Why is it here? Uh, there's plenty of opportunity earlier for instructions, and there have been. Especially in the book of Leviticus. Many Levitical instructions about offerings and sacrifices. So why is it? And that's a good question as a biblical interpreter. You come to a place where the narrative is disrupted, and not uh, in a negative way, but uh, there's a break in it. And then it resumes near the end of the chapter. Why all of these offerings? According to one writer, the effect of these laws here is much like a coach reviewing game strategies and basic fundamentals that were forgotten following a crushing defeat. So just imagine someone's out on the field and the game is going on and the fundamentals are not being practiced. And the coach is looking at what's going on and thinking, this is an absolute mess. We've talked about this. Okay? In fact, we've spent time in conditioning and spent time in practice. And so after the defeat, the coach has said, okay, listen, practice is going to look different today. We're going to get together and we're going to review what is it that went so fundamentally wrong? What is it that disconnected? 
And in chapter 15, 1 to 31, here is the Lord giving basic instructions about approaching him for worship, approaching him for offerings. They need to remember that they are a people redeemed from Egypt, that they might approach the Lord in worship. And the strategy of locating it here is important, given what we've just seen. We have seen rebellion amidst the Israelites. And now we're pulled into the practice field and are told, if you will, what are the basic, most fundamental things that we need to keep in mind? We are a people who approach God. So what went wrong in the game last night? That, that, kind, of, that kind of mentality. So I think that illustration is helpful in a human sense to get at why these instructions here. And then a resuming of the narration of the events. Now, I need you to also notice that there are sacrifices here that have some expansion on them. There, there is uh, some reflection on bringing meat offerings, which we've seen before. Even language about bringing grain or flour offerings, which we've noticed before. But there seems to be some additional detail that Numbers 15 gives us. And in verses 1 to 16, we will notice laws about what should accompany certain sacrifices. They are a people who ought to approach God on God's terms. However, if Numbers 14 went the way it did, clearly there are some fundamental internal disconnects about who they believe themselves to be. And as Israelites, how their pursuit of what is right and pursuit of what is fitting for their nation should be. They have failed in Numbers 14. A colossal failure and defeat rooted in unbelief. So then back to some fundamentals. Who are we to be as a people? And in chapter 15, 1 to 16, here are some instructions of what accompanies specific sacrifices. Uh, And what we're going to see accompanying these animal sacrifices are offerings of flour. These would be a typical grain offering, some kind of flour, fine flour that's going to be mixed with it, as well as offerings of wine. So drink offering. So you got food offerings, these uh, meat sacrifices, these offerings and accompanying them. Here's the, the expansion. Accompanying them seem to be flower additions as well as wine additions. If you were to uh, be invited over to a place and somebody had set out some meat and somebody had set out some grain and somebody had set out some drink, you would be thinking to yourself, well, we're having a meal together. That's what this looks like. All right. They're spreading this out on the table. Indeed, this is to picture a fellowship with Yahweh. Now, as a 21st century Bible reader, listen, I do understand getting into Numbers 15 as if it feels like getting into some weeds, okay? Getting into some specifics, some amounts, and some fractions. The big picture is what sort of people have they been redeemed from Egypt to be? A people who fellowship with God. So set the table, bring the meat, set out the bread offering, and bring the wine. It's the picture of a people drawing near to God. And this brings to mind, again, the internal disconnect that seemed to be going on in Numbers 13 and 14. Are these not a people seeking to fellowship with God? He welcomes them, nevertheless. You see, what they should do is repent. What they should do is see that Numbers 15 is talking to a rebellious people. Will you come to my table and fellowship with me? 
These are a people who should turn from their wickedness because they have acted wickedly. This is a people who should believe God's promises for they have acted in unbelief. Numbers 15 is a welcome to them if they will come to the table. And in verses 1 to 16, we're going to see references to things that in Leviticus and earlier in Numbers have already been highlighted. In Leviticus 23, there are certain festivals that involve animal and grain and drink offerings. It's really good. Festival of first fruits in Leviticus 23 and the festival of weeks in that same chapter. There are, there are already some grain and drink accompaniments. This chapter escalates it. And we'll see why. In number six, the Nazarite consecration involved meat and grain and drinks. So this is not brand new as a concept, but it's not been so specifically applied as it will be more comprehensively applied. These are no longer just two feasts or the consecration of the Nazarite. We're going to see something that feels far more regular, far more rhythmic. These are a people that are to fellowship with Yahweh. The question is, will they? Will they respond to his gracious and merciful welcome? On the board, uh, on the right, what I've laid out are uh, the categories that these instructions are going to follow. They're going to mention an animal, some fine flour with a specific amount, and then some wine. And then they're going to go to a second animal and then a third animal, but corresponding fine flour and wine amounts given. I want you to notice that as the value of the animal increases... So you move from lamb, verses 4 and 5, to ram, verses 6 and 7, to a bull in verses 8 to 10. As the value of the animal increases, so proportionally increases the amount of fine flour and wine. It's not the same amount in every case. So you move in the fine flour categories from one-tenth of an ephah, two-tenths, into three-tenths. We're going up. And then with wine, a fourth of a hen, a third of a hen, and a half of a hen. Now, none of you baked with ephahs and hens today. You did not go by those measurements, and I understand that. These are old measurements, but we don't, we don't want to miss what is obvious about the amounts. They're going up as the animal value goes up. Okay, noticing that, then we begin in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering, or a burnt offering, or a sacrifice, to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering, or at your appointed feasts, to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord the following thing. And uh, they're going to focus first on the ram. Now, notice with me um, the good news of verse 1. And two, when you come into the land, the first animal, by the way, is a lamb. I apologize. Lamb and then ram and then bull. The uh, assumption in verse two is hope giving. When you come into the land, you are to inhabit. I think the opening of chapter 15 here further helps us see strategically why it fits. Because Numbers 14 pronounced a judgment over many Israelites who will not inherit the land. But no one should draw the conclusion from that that the Lord must decide to withdraw all entries or all inhabitants in the future from the land. He, he must, in, in the end, not only judge this generation, maybe he'll change his mind altogether. Well, in verse 2, they're told, when you come into the land. What does that mean? That means this judgment is indeed a temporary one. All the bodies of those rebel despising Israelites will fall into the wilderness. But what's going to happen after that? They're going to go into the land. 
These instructions that we're going to read tonight assume a presence in Canaan. That's great news. Amidst the details of the protocols and procedures and measurements, here is news of what you're to do when you're in the land. Okay then. Then that means the Lord's gracious and merciful character and faithfulness to His promises continues. Even during these 40 years, He will bring His people into the land afterward. Which I am giving you. Uh, In verse 3, in when you're in this land, when you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock... That's a reference to the groups of animals. They've got herds of livestock, uh, flocks of livestock. And from those, they would draw maybe a bull, maybe a lamb. Uh, It's from those groups of animals that they would offer a sacrifice, uh, some sort of food offering, such as a burnt offering or sacrifice. And they're offered for different reasons in verse 3. It can be the case that a vow had been made, like the Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6, a temporary voluntary vow. And when somebody engages in that kind of spiritual focus for a time, they complete that vow by bringing an offering. So he says, let's say you're doing it for that reason. Uh, A free will offering um, is not about the debate between free will and sovereignty. A free will offering is just an offering of thanksgiving to God. Uh, So we don't want to attach to it what really has nothing to do with this term. A free will offering is bringing a thanksgiving offering to God. He says, let's say you want to do that. You've got a herd, you've got a flock. You want to bring a meat offering from that for a free will offering. Uh, they do it voluntarily. That's what free will means there. It's not mandatory. Uh, or at your appointed feast. He says, look, it's your calendar during the year. You're offering meat sacrifices. You've got certain festivals and you're bringing specific offerings. And if you're doing this to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and that would, that would happen, by the way, as an image of receiving the offering Um, from the faith that the worshiper has in giving it. The Lord receives it, a pleasing aroma. Burnt offering, pleasing aroma, that's not what we think about when in our kitchens we burn something. Burnt offering, pleasing aroma, that's not what goes together. Our smoke detectors tell us that, right? So if you think burnt offering, pleasing aroma, what's the connection there? Where the worshiper has come to God drawing near by faith. And the Lord is pleased at the faith of the worshiper. So the offering is received, this pleasing aroma. It's as if you draw near to the table and the table is set and the Lord draws near to the table. And you take a deep breath and you say, this is going to be wonderful. This feast smells impeccable. Now, in verse 3, this is just an image, right? We're not thinking about Yahweh having nostrils. We are thinking metaphorically about God receiving the worshiper. And after Numbers 13 and 14, it's really good news that they know what kind of God is God. God is the kind of God that if they will come to him in faith, they can draw near to him and they will be received. They will not be turned away. They should come to him. In verse 4, here's what the person shall do. Bring his offering, shall offer it to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering. Or for the sacrifice, a quarter of a hen of wine, the drink offering for each lamb. This uh, flour is mixed with oil. I didn't write all of that out on the board. But you have a tenth of an ephah of flour, and you've got a quarter of a hen of oil. What do these measurements correlate to? Well, the best estimates from Old Testament scholars, that I'm, just, I'm citing from you resources that I'm helped by, I don't, I don't know how much an ephah and a hen are. So a tenth of an ephah is about two quarts. And a quarter of a hen 
is about one quart. And then people work proportionally from that. Um, I'm not going to give you all those proportions all the way through. I'm not, I don't want to do math, uh, especially fractions. <laughs> that's why I joined the ministry. And in verse 5, no, that's not true. You shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. For each lamb. This is something that feels more than just the two festivals. They talked about free will offering. They talked about a burnt offering. And sometimes an Israelite could bring a burnt offering voluntarily uh, at any point in the year, any point during the day. Even the high priests and priests were offering offerings morning and evening on behalf of the nation. But individual households could bring them. So now he's saying, whenever you bring them, whenever you bring them, bring a flour offering that's mixed with oil. And there's the amount if you're bringing a lamb. And then bring a quarter of a hint of wine. That's the amount if you're bringing a lamb. Well, what if they say, well, I want a ram instead? Well, verses 6 and 7 say, For a ram you shall offer for a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hint of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer a third of a hint of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We have an increase in value of the animal, increase in the fine flour and the wine. Verses 8 through 10, and when, you shall offer, and when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hen of oil. And you shall offer for the drink offering half a hen of wine. The oil and wine proportions match and increase with the value of the animal as well. All of this is a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done. For each bull or ram, each lamb or young goat, as many as you offer, so shall you do with each one, as many as there are. What verses 1 to 12 just gave us are additional instructions about what should accompany these specific animals. If an Israelite were to say, well, I'm bringing a ram for a burnt offering. Is this the time of year where I'm supposed to bring the flour and the wine? Oh, no, it's always the time. Like, you, you bring that now. Like, that is the instruction to accompany the animal. And it gives you, in verses 11 and 12, the summary. It shall be done for each bull or ram, each lamb or young goat. As many as you offer, do that for each one. Uh, that kind of comprehensive instruction is helpful. The Israelites don't need to wonder, well, is this a sort of burnt offering with this particular ram where I don't need the wine? This in verses 11 and 12 helps them. And it gives you a, a new pattern and rhythm for their sacrificial activity. Now, what if you were to wonder, okay, if Israelites are to do this, what if you're a Gentile? What if you are a non-Israelite, you're a sojourner, you're coming into the land, you're a stranger to the land, but you want to associate with these covenant blessings and life of the people. You want to learn of Yahweh and worship the living God. He says in verse 13, every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the native Israelite, that's the one who will be in the land, right? And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently with you, among you, he and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He shall do as you do. What we just read there is, here are instructions for any worshiper of Yahweh, Jew or Greek, Israelite or non-Israelite. If you're an Israelite or whether you're a Gentile, if you want to worship Yahweh at the tabernacle, these instructions are for you. And it's good news, again, to reiterate for these Israelites, because they have had a pronouncement about judgment of 40 years and not inheriting the land. 
And God is giving them instructions that will require being in the land. Wine, they're going to get this from grapes. Well, we know grapes are in the land. The spies came with a large pole carrying a cluster of enormous grapes. And therefore, there's a, this land is going to have wine. This land is going to have grain. This land is going to have animals. Then, um, when you get later on in the Old Testament, both Israelite and non-Israelite hopefulness is laid out in 1 Kings and the book of Isaiah. And I want to give you an example of what I have in mind. The, the land of Israel was to be a place where the Israelites worshipped the living God in spirit and in truth. They were to know Him and to make Him known. And the Gentiles, who might have been entangled in idolatry and dark uh, actions and wickedness, they could be called out of that in, from darkness to light to worship and know Yahweh. In 1 Kings 8, the language says in 1 Kings 8.41, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, when he comes and prays toward this house, that's the temple in 1 Kings 8, and he prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Solomon is saying this to the Lord. If someone, Lord, who's a non-Israelite, comes here to worship you, then, Lord, here in heaven... And do according to what the foreigner calls, that the peoples may know your name and fear you. Why is there a more global and multinational theme in Solomon's prayer? Because the problem of sin is a global one. And the glory of God is to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the garden project that Adam and Eve would multiply and be image bearers, praising the Lord and rightly representing the Lord is a trajectory fulfilled by a new creation where God has a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping Him across the renewed cosmos. In other words, in, in 1 Kings 8, we get one more installment in the Old Testament that God's heart is for the nations. Why did He set apart Israel? For the nations. That He set apart a nation for the nations. Christ comes from the people of Israel that he might die for the nations. And this was because long before there was an Israel, there was an Abraham who was told that through his family, God would bring blessing to the families of the earth. And the source of that blessing is the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and doesn't profane it and holds fast my covenant. God says, these, these Gentiles, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And here, here see if this sounds familiar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And then Jesus goes in his Passion Week to a temple in Jerusalem where the nations are not respected in their worship to God, but rather all sorts of tables and chairs and money changing is going on, disrupting what was to be a place of prayer and worship for the nations. It is the design of God from his very heart that the nations would know his mercy and truth. And that was not being applied practically by the, by the leading religious leaders of Jesus' day. And Jesus 
turns over tables and chairs. And he drives out money changers because they had no longer honored this place as a place of prayer for all peoples. The goal, the goal is God's mercy to the nations. And Israel is set apart for the nations outside Israel. And that is why when Jesus is giving his instruction to the people in Acts 1 post-resurrection, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why so global? This mission of the church even is foreshadowed by missional language of Israel in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the plan in Genesis. It's a beautiful thing. It helps us see, I think, the interconnectedness of the Testaments and the unfolding glory of the new covenant in which Christ himself is the temple to which the nations come. If we see in Isaiah 56 that God's going to bring the Gentiles and make them in their, in a joyful in his house of prayer, ultimately this will be fulfilled in Christ, who is the temple in which the nations find pardon from sin and joy of salvation. Amen. In verse 15, for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you. And for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations, you and your sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. So everything we've read about verses 1 to 16 is to apply to Israelites and non-Israelites in their worship of Yahweh. Verses 17 to 21 are going to give you some additional instructions, not about these various offerings covered here, but uh, about dough that is baked in the home. And Numbers 15, 17 to 21 is, uh, is I think, already alluding to an earlier practice. They are to give the first fruits of things at certain points of the year, the harvest, for instance, because God is the giver of the harvest. They're to honor the fact that he is the one who provides by responding, offering the first fruits of their harvest. Here is the new instruction. And one commentator puts it this way. Now they have to bring the first cake out of every batch of bread they prepared to the priest as a gift for the Lord. In this way, he says, the cooks would be constantly reminded of the one from whom their daily bread came. In other words... Earlier, while certain seasons of the year or festivals would warrant bringing something in response to God's provision, this is not seasonal provision merely that's honored here, but the daily bread and sustenance of the Israelites. Here's the way this works in verses 17 and following. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, really again, good news, In verse 19, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. When you eat of it. Now, it doesn't say at a particular festival or time of the harvest. It's just saying when you eat of the bread, which would be far more often than the more distant occasions or spread out occasions that I've mentioned. You shall present a contribution to the Lord. What does that look like? That means they're taking a portion of the flour in the dough and they're bringing it to the tabernacle and they're giving it to the priest. They're giving it to the priest. That's how they give it to the Lord. They give it to the Lord by giving it to the Lord's mediators. This is a provision for the priests. The priests are from Levi and they don't have a tribal allotment in the land. So where do they get their food? The Israelite tribes will provide the food for the priests. There are offerings 
that are meat-oriented, and some of that meat will go to the priests. There are offerings that are flour and grain-oriented. Some of that bread will go to the priests. That's what the instruction here is. The priests will have a constant provision because the Lord is giving a constant provision to the people. Their obedience here recognizes with honoring God that this comes from His hand. See, they ought not do this begrudgingly. They are to be a cheerful giver because God is a cheerful giver. He blesses them. He has abundantly provided for them. And therefore, they are to go and give because the Lord will continue to give. In verse 20, Of the first of your dough you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. The Apostle Paul was well aware of remembering this uh, particular um, practice. He used it by analogy in Romans chapter 11. To give you an instance of this in chapter 11, Romans eleven sixteen, Paul says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And Paul's in the middle there talking about various things of Israelites being grafted in, trusting in the Messiah. There had been such rejection among so many Jews when the Messiah had come. And uh, the Apostle Paul, in part of his teaching of Romans 11, what does he draw upon? A particular instruction about giving the first fruits of the dough that Numbers 15 gives. Now, in then verses 22 to 26, uh, oh, by the way, so far then, verses 1 to 21 tell us what kind of people are we to be. Let's draw near to the Lord. Let's draw near to the Lord knowing that he has provided for us, that his mercy welcomes us, that we are to set out, if you will, the meat and the bread and the wine. Let us come to fellowship with Yahweh and let us come with gratitude. Let us come with stewardship. Let us come counting on the faithfulness of Yahweh. They ought, in other words, not to eat their dough and bake their bread and think, but what if the Lord won't give more? The Lord has been giving them manna Every morning since Exodus 16, for more than a year after leaving Egypt, they have enjoyed the provision of the Lord. What they need to do is walk and speak and act and respond, trusting the faithfulness of the Lord. That, that is what is difficult for them. That's what's difficult for us. I think it's, it's challenging with the circumstances and trials of life to have to preach to ourselves some of the most basic and fundamental truths. What is it that I know the Word teaches about the Lord? I can trust Him. I really can trust Him. I can count on His faithfulness. He will not fail. I may not understand all of His ways. He is greater in His thoughts and, and sovereignty. And yet, that doesn't mean I trust Him less. That means I have all the reason more to trust Him. In verses 17 to 21, we are to approach with thankfulness, stewardship, gratitude. And in verses 22 to 26, they also bring things to the tabernacle if something has gone wrong spiritually. So sometimes, you know, you're bringing sacrifices because there's voluntary offerings and vows and, and thanksgiving. That's not always why offerings are brought. Sometimes offerings are brought because transgression has taken place. And you know that I am in fellowship with Yahweh because of a covenant made at Sinai. And I am to notice when I have uh, brought uh, disrepute on the name of Yahweh. When I have engaged in transgression of his commandments. And I'm not just to ignore that. There, there are ways ritually that would show their repentance. They want to take seriously the law. They are not a perfect people. These instructions 
assume, assume in the tabernacle system, these are not a perfect people. These are a people who will again and again need to draw near to Yahweh, who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verses 22 to 26 are about what happens if the congregation has done something wrong. And then verses 27 through 31 are about the sins of individuals. Uh, But they all involve bringing things. So that's why we're tying all of these verses together. Things that are being brought to the tabernacle for different reasons. In verses 22 to 26, we're going to see the term unintentional sins. Unintentional sins. If you sin unintentionally, and then there's language about intentionality. We see this uh, later in verse 30. Sinning with a high hand. So unintentionality and intentionality. This is a a tricky part of Numbers chapter 15. And it probably draws upon earlier Levitical instructions. It's been a long time since we were in Leviticus 4 and 5, but this is where this is located. That in the lives of the Israelites, it is possible that they're not trying to rebel against the Lord when they transgress certain commandments. It may be because they're ignorant of a particular instruction. It may be because they forget a particular protocol or procedure. It may be because the priests bungle up something. But it's not driven, these particular episodes, driven because the people despise the Lord and hate His Word and they don't want to. So there's a category of unintentional sins. That doesn't mean they didn't really do it. It doesn't mean they're not responsible for their actions. But there's not a high-handedness. There's not some kind of flagrant, shameless, shaking your fist at Yahweh kind of thing. These are the, this is the category of unintentional sins. And in Leviticus 4 and 5, I'm going to uh, cite for you a summary that one writer pulled together of, uh, of how this could have worked out practically. One, one writer puts it this way. This could involve the sin of a priest due to lack of proper knowledge, a lack of knowledge of proper procedures. You see, many priests would come from the line of Israel's uh, Levitical tribe. Many priests in the generations ahead. You should not assume that every time the priest was doing something, they always got it right. I mean, if you're new at a job, it might be the case that after a few weeks you realize, oh my goodness, I've been doing that wrong the whole time. And it's not because you were trying to be like, I don't care about protocol. I'm going to do it the way I want. It's because there was some sort of learning curve that you were still engaged in. Okay, well then here you have these priests. And yes, ratchet it up in a much more serious situation. This is tabernacle worship. Uh, it's not, it's not a, a, a business in Israel. This is the tabernacle. And yet, it can be the case that an anointed priest's activity and lack of understanding about something then has a congregational impact. Because the priest is to represent the congregation. And if they are misleading the people, wrongly instructing them, wrongly modeling by example, well, this isn't good. All of a sudden, something becomes more widespread. It could also be a breach of the law among individuals in the community or groups within the community who have a responsibility to do what is right, but for whatever reason, not high-handedly or rebelliously, haven't been doing what they should. Um, You could see this with groups that are impure according to cultic standards, he says, by touching animal or human corpses and are rendered unclean, but don't take proper procedures or aren't guided to do it properly. Um, this, uh, this is what you might call unintentional sin. And I, I'm tempted to use the phrase, it's accidental sin. But I, I don't want us to take the word accidental and make, make it as if they're not therefore responsible. That There's still a level of responsibility here. 
there are instructions about what to do. So somebody's going to have to respond doing something. Unintentional sins seem to be right. Verses 22 and following. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all the commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses, from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then... If it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. With its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. We have then both flour and wine accompaniments. Not surprised, because we were learning earlier in verses 1 to 16, that's now to be what you expect as your rhythm. You're bringing animals... And not just that. Flower offerings mixed with oil, you're bringing uh, drink offerings as well. Verses 25 and 26. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel. And they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. And they brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord. And their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. And the stranger who sojourns among them. Because the whole population was involved in the mistake. That means Israelite, non-Israelite. If something more broadly is experienced, either led out by the priest or groups within the congregation, they can come to the Lord for forgiveness. He welcomes them. In fact, that proves to be a kind of testing for their own hearts, doesn't it? Because if they've sinned unintentionally and therefore they have a desire to keep the law, they will want to do what the Lord requires. And they will say, okay, a sin offering, we can do that. A burnt offering with the flour, with the wine, we know that from earlier. We can bring that. And we will. Because we love Yahweh. And we don't want to be transgressors of his commandments. We want to turn from what is wrong. We want to be clean ritually to approach the tabernacle. Now, what if it's not more widespread among congregations and groups? What if it's an individual? Verses 27 to 31 end our passage tonight talking about what if an individual sins? In verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him. And he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally and for him who is a native among the people of Israel for the stranger who sojourns among them. In other words, both congregationally and individually, is anything going to change about whether they're an Israelite or or non-Israelite? No. It's the same principle. Draw near to God. You realize, I haven't been uh, obeying this particular commandment, or I've been neglecting this particular ceremonial procedure. The Lord says, come to my tabernacle then. Come. Let's bring out the meat, the grain, the wine. Come to me. What he doesn't want them to do is turn from him. And you can imagine someone in the Israelite camp thinking long before Jesus had to pose the question to disciples. If the Israelites listen to these instructions and think, surely this is a difficult and hard teaching. And the Israelite leaders could well say to them even much earlier than Jesus said to his disciples, well, then do you also want to go? Hopefully there would be people among the Israelite camp like Joshua and Caleb and others to say, where else shall we go? Here we have the tabernacle. Here we have the words of God through Moses. These are the words of life. Therefore, we should not turn. And though these procedures may be tricky, and though there might be neglect and unintentionality, this is the living God who welcomes us. 
So where else would we go? To Baal? To an Asherah pole? To a high hill out in Canaan with a fertility cult? No, we will worship Yahweh. And it's about their heart before him, you see. And the Lord knows their heart. The Lord knows their heart. All of that is taken into account. But our passage doesn't end with an individual who's unintentionally sinning. It ends with, well, what if there is someone among the Israelites or a sojourner who does not want to follow the Lord? They do not take seriously his law. It is not a heart of love and worship toward Yahweh that they have. They have a different spiritual disposition. And in verses 30 to 31, but for the person who does anything with a high hand. Now this phrase in the original language means to sin with an upraised hand. Either because there's a weapon or because it's like a fist shaken to Yahweh's face. Where there is a flaunting of rebellion in the face of Yahweh. It's like, I don't care what he says. I'm the authority. I'm going to do what I want. And Moses says, no, here's what the word of Yahweh says. Or the priests say, here is what is to be done. And these people say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live the way I want. I'm going to worship the way I want. I'm going to go where I want. The calendar of Israel, that doesn't determine my schedule. The procedures to approach the tabernacle, that's not decisive for me. This is someone whose actions are from a heart of high-handedness toward the Lord. An upraised hand of rebellion. For the person who does with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, this person reviles the Lord. Now I want to distinguish here what I think is so helpful that's in this text. People who want to follow the Lord, and yet they are imperfect disciples. Their lives are characterized by weakness, vulnerability, neglect. There might be various things in their lives through instruction and wisdom. They realize that they want to follow the Lord even more faithfully. Because they can sense in light of all that God is worthy of and all that God has called them to. They know how they fall short, yet they love God. Listen, God loves them. Theirs is the new heavens and new earth. They shall inherit it. But there are Israelites and Gentiles that this text takes into account. These are not people who want to follow the Lord as disciples. They don't want to worship Yahweh. They want to live on their terms. Who is God in their life? They are God in their life. And they live with a high hand in the midst of the camp. Whether a native Israelite or a sojourner who's a Gentile, this person reviles the Lord. That is a strong verb. To revile the Lord is to live with contempt and despising of the Lord. You've already had examples of that from Numbers 14. People who want Egypt and not the promised land. People who will turn from Moses and choose a leader God hasn't sanctioned and go back to reverse the exodus. These people who revile the Lord do not want what the Lord has called them to do, has for them in the future. They don't hope in His promises. They love the darkness and do not walk in the light. That person reviles the Lord. This is an Old Testament instruction that's given in parallel New Testament passages where people are warned about being part of of communities and circumstances and groups who might have some sort of external association, but in the heart, in the heart, they are far from God. They do not love Him. He says in verse 31, 
Uh, verse 30, rather, they, this person reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. You say, wait a second. Now, earlier, there were people transgressing the commandments of the Lord. It's not like this person breaks a commandment. Nobody else ever did. The difference, the difference is that those earlier are given instructions to approach God. This, in verses 30 to 31, envisions someone who doesn't want God. This is someone who lives in defiance of God. They don't love his word. They don't love his commands. And therefore their sin will reap judgment. And the earthly ostracism or cutting off foreshadows the future judgment they face at the return of Christ. They have despised the the word of the Lord. That's how they think of God's word. They despise it. They hold it in contempt. They do not delight in it. They do not love it. They do not want to follow it. They despise it. The the heart's disposition toward the revealed words of God are very indicative. And here, what it indicates is that this person is sinning with a high hand. Not all sins are created equal here. Not all sinning and transgressing is the same. This is high-handed rebellion against the words and ways of Yahweh. Well, then what else should we expect? These are people who therefore not only don't want God, they're like the wicked generation who wouldn't want the promised land. They want Egypt. So therefore they shall be cut off from the people because they reject the God of the people and the promises the people are to be shaped by. Old Testament scholars debate on whether this cutting off was a kind of exile, an expulsion from the community like an excommunication. It could even be so serious of a physical judgment where their very life is brought to an end. And the reason that needs to be on the table as an option is because of the passage coming on Sunday morning. In verses 32 to 36. Verses 32 to 36 seem to be a narrative illustration of verses 30 and 31. And I'm not saying that every high-handed rebellion of an Israelite or, or a Gentile was met with a physical death. I'm saying that was a possibility. They shall be cut off utterly. His iniquity shall be on him. In other words, they do not come to God as sinners needing atonement. And therefore, they will die in their sins. The only hope of the gospel for sinners is that we have in Christ Jesus one who died in our sins. But we... We have to recognize that same dichotomy, that same fork in the road. Rejecting the Lord and despising his word will mean we will bear our iniquities on our heads. To come to Christ is to recognize on the cross, he has our iniquities on his head that we might walk in response to his mercy and in his steadfast love. These in verses 30 and 31 are not Those who love the steadfast love of God. They reject it. They despise his promises. They don't want his authority in their life. One New Testament scholar says this reminds him of the offense of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the New Testament Gospels. Where you might think to yourself, okay, in verses 30 to 31, there doesn't seem to be forgiveness here. And that is because they are alienating themselves from the grace and mercy of God in their rebellion. To reject God is to reject the source of pardon and mercy. 
And therefore, when the blasphemy against the Spirit is committed in the New Testament, I think in those contexts, it's specifically rejecting the Spirit's testimony of who Jesus is through his works, and especially through the the exorcisms. The religious leaders were willing to say, not that he didn't perform the exorcisms, that was happening in front of them. They had to say that he must be doing it by the power of Beelzebul. In other words, they were rejecting the Spirit's testimony about who Jesus is and the authority by which he acted. Oh, he's not of heaven. He must be acting on behalf of the evil one. And therefore, committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to reject the Spirit's authority and testimony. And if one does that, well, how is there forgiveness in Christ? It's a rejection of Christ. What they need to do is to repent and believe. What these Israelites need to do is to approach the Lord. They need to not follow the way of the wilderness generation. They need to hear those divine pronouncements ringing in their ears like echoes and saying, I will do differently. I don't want to reject the Lord. I don't want to despise his word. That ought to be unthinkable to us. To despise the words of God, which are good and delightful. The writer of Hebrews seems to draw upon Numbers 15 with his warning. I know I've mentioned a lot of Hebrews texts this morning and last week. But that's because the book of Hebrews alludes a lot to Leviticus and Numbers. So there will be future allusions to numbers in Hebrews that we're going to notice in our study in the book. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning deliberately, and what he seems to have in mind there is the high-handed rebellion against God. He's saying if this is what our life consists of, then there is no longer remaining a sacrifice for sins for us, but a fearful expectation of judgment. So if someone is living in defiance of God, according to Numbers 15, what should they expect? The promised land and the covenant blessings? No, they should expect judgment. The writer of Hebrews makes an analogy. And he says, listen, I know we're in the new covenant. But how much greater the news we have received. Christ Jesus has come. News of mercy in him has been delivered. If we reject him, if we defy his good words, how is there any remedy left for us? He is the remedy. He is the lamb given for us. So the writer of Hebrews says, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses in the Old Testament dies without mercy. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Oh, what words to cause our hearts to be sober-minded and even to come before the Lord knowing our ever-present need for mercy and grace. That we would not be found as those like even Old Testament Israelites were, despising the words and goodness of God. Oh, what surpassing glories and greatness there exists in the new covenant message of Jesus. So he says, well, therefore, if in the old covenant, in Numbers 15, for example, if punishment awaited those who defied the Lord, then how much worse... For trampling the Son of God underfoot. Profaning the blood of the covenant. We know him, he says, who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray.